This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It was Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, and Flo Schaffner hated her job. It wasn't always that way. In fact, when she first became a stewardess for Northwest Orient Airlines, she bought into the sales pitch, hook, line, and sinker. The job was glamorous and exciting. She'd get to travel the world. Maybe one day she'd marry a handsome pilot. When she was a little girl, she won a string of child beauty pageants. She was even voted Miss Pink Tomato. She was on her varsity cheerleading squad in the tiny little fly speck of a town where she grew up in Arkansas. When she was a kid, Flo dreamed of one day visiting the most exotic place she'd ever heard of, Tahiti. So one day when she was paging through a glamour magazine, she saw an ad for flight attendant training in St. Paul. Flo saw this as her shot at getting out of her hometown and seeing the world. Maybe one day seeing Tahiti. But the airline didn't prove to be the dream job she'd hoped it would be. The work was demanding, soulless, and unfulfilling. Women were expected to be part waitress, part guidance counselor, and part sex symbol. Recently, the airlines had come under scrutiny with a lot of the women's liberation groups for their provocative ad campaigns, featuring smiling, sexy stewardesses promising a lot more than just a safe flight. National Airlines really took things too far with their current ad campaign featuring a string of beautiful women telling people to fly me. Back in those days, the airlines had strict regulations on how their stewardesses were expected to look and act. At one point, Flo grew so depressed over her job she began stress eating. When her weight grew to 185 pounds, she was put on unpaid probation and ordered by her employers to lose weight or else. A doctor put her on diet pills that made the hunger pangs disappear and eventually she was able to starve herself enough so that she could fit into the sexy new Christian Dior-designed uniforms that all Northwest Orient stewardesses were expected to wear. Flo Schaffner especially hated the uniforms. Everything was red. Red lipstick, red nail polish, an ultra-modern short red dress with a little duckbill cap. Flo thought it made her look like a cross between a James Bond girl and Elmer Fudd. On top of all that, she had to wear an itchy short black bob wig over her naturally straight hair because she never had time to do her hair to Northwest standards before her next shift. On that particular Thanksgiving Eve, Florence Schaffner was stationed at the top of the aft stairs on Flight 305, on the tarmac of Portland International Airport. A cold wind blew through the air and up into the plane's cabin. The weather reports were saying a storm was brewing. Flight 305 was a Boeing 727. This was an unusual plane design that had proven so costly it very nearly bankrupted the company when it was first built. But Uncle Sam stepped in and helped turn Boeing around. The aft stairs were able to lower down from the rear of the plane which allowed passengers to board the plane directly from the tarmac. 
This innovation proved popular with the United States government, and in particular the CIA. They purchased several of the Boeing 727s for Air America, their covert drug smuggling operation in Laos during the Vietnam War. This wasn't public knowledge at the time, though. It was a busy afternoon at Portland International as thousands of travelers muscled their way through the airport to reach their families in time for Thanksgiving. Flight 305 was scheduled to take off with a crew of six. Captain William Scott, First Officer Bill Ratichak, Flight Engineer Harold Anderson, and Flight Attendants Alice Hancock, Tina Mucklow, and Florence Schaffner. 37 passengers purchased tickets for that day's flight. Airline security was far different back then. You could actually walk up to the gate and purchase a ticket right on the spot without showing any identification. This, of course, had its drawbacks. The lax security had led to a rash of skyjackings that had occurred all throughout the major airlines. Back then, it had become so common for armed men to commandeer a plane and direct them to fly to the otherwise restricted destination of Cuba that all commercial aircraft carried navigation charts on board with directions to Havana. There had even been serious talk about building a fake Havana just outside Miami to fool the hijackers into landing on U.S. soil. Just 10 days earlier, a Canadian skyjacker changed things up a bit. He said he was a member of the Irish Republican Army before he donned a mask and began waving a shotgun around an Air Canada flight, threatening to blow the plane up with a bomb unless they gave him $1.5 million, and redirected the flight to Ireland. That skyjacking attempt ended abruptly, though, when an Air Canada purser managed to sneak up behind him and bash the man in the skull with a fire axe. It was a fact that despite how popular skyjacking had become around the world, there had never been a completely successful skyjacking ever committed to date. Either the attempt was thwarted in the act or the skyjacker was tracked down and arrested sometime after. That was all about to change, though. That's because Flight 305 was about to go down in history as the location of the only unsolved skyjacking to this day. It was the work of a man who showed up at Portland International that day and paid $20 cash for a one-way ticket to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport or SeaTac, as it was known. The man was later described as a fairly ordinary-looking white male in his mid-40s, wearing a black or brown business suit, white shirt, thin tie, and a black raincoat. He had slicked-over black hair parted to the side, and he wore sunglasses throughout most of the flight. After he jumped out of the plane mid-flight and vanished, his name became the stuff of legend. This is the story of the skyjacker everyone came to know as D.B. Cooper. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from inside the hollow moon, and this is The Conspirators. For starters, let's be clear. The one person who never referred to himself as D.B. Cooper was D.B. Cooper. The name the man gave at the Northwest Orient ticket counter when he purchased his ticket was Dan Cooper. When doing research on the subject, you'll hear slight variations on how the mistake occurred. But the story told in Jeffrey Gray's book, Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, said that a stringer for the Associated Press was on the phone with an FBI spokesman when he misheard the agent who told him they were looking at a suspect named D. Cooper. The stringer wrote it down as D.B. Cooper, and after that the name spread and it stuck forever after. D.B. Cooper was the second to last passenger to board Flight 305 to Seattle. 
The stewardesses on board the plane that day would describe him as soft-spoken and polite. He sat in the last row, number 18, on the plane's starboard side. After he sat down, he placed his attaché case on the empty seat next to the window. He kept his raincoat on throughout the flight. Soon after, the pilot started the plane's engines. Once all the passengers were settled in, Florence Schaffner pulled the lever that raised the aft stairs. After that, Flo made her way down the aisle, taking everyone's drink orders. When she got to row 18, the man in the dark suit ordered a bourbon and 7-Up. The drink was only a dollar, but the man handed her a 20. She asked him if he had anything smaller, but he told her he didn't. She told the man that she'd have to bring him change later. Flo and the two other stewardesses went over the usual pre-flight instructions for the passengers, then began handing out everyone's drinks. As the plane began to taxi, she made her way down the aisle to the passenger in row 18. The flight was only supposed to take 28 minutes. She was looking forward to checking into her hotel room and taking off this scratchy wig and hopping into a hot shower. The next day, she was going to fly back to Arkansas to spend the Thanksgiving with her family. When Flo got to row 18, the man in the dark suit and sunglasses addressed her as Miss and handed her a white envelope. Flo took the envelope and dropped it into her purse without looking at it. She was used to men hitting on her and she thought she'd toss the love note in the trash later. But then the man addressed her again. Miss, he said. I think you better have a look at that note. Flo reached into her purse and opened the note. The words were written in black ink with a felt-tip pen on a thick sheet of white paper. The note read, Miss, I have a bomb, and I would like you to sit by me. Flo did as the note instructed and sat next to the man who would go on to be known worldwide as D.B. Cooper. She asked him if this was a joke, and the man told her it wasn't. He then reached over and lifted the lid on his attaché case, revealing a set of red sticks that looked like dynamite. Flo could also see some wires and a battery. In his right hand, he held up a copper wire that she realized must be able to detonate the bomb. It felt as if all the air left Flo's body. She could barely breathe. She looked up and met the gaze of Tina Mucklow, one of the other stewardesses. Flo mouthed Tina's name and Tina realized something was wrong. Tina came closer, bent down, and picked up the note Flo had dropped in the aisle and read it herself. Then she immediately made her way to the phone hanging next to the lavatory and called the cockpit. She told the flight crew that the plane was being hijacked. The man had a bomb, and this was no joke. By then the plane was already in its ascent and it was too late to stop it or turn it around. Captain William Scott radioed Northwest Orient Flight Operations in Minnesota, and alerted them about the hijacking. Meanwhile, D.B. Cooper instructed Flo Schaffner to take out a pen and write down his demands. She wrote everything down on the envelope he had given her. He told her he wanted $200,000 in cash by 5 p.m. He also wanted two back parachutes and two front parachutes, and a fuel truck to be standing by when they landed so they could refuel. He also asked for meals for the flight crew in case anyone got hungry. He then said, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. Flo Schaffner wrote that down as well. He then said, No fuss. After this, we'll take a little trip. The last thing Flo wrote down was, No fuss. Flo was terrified. Did the math in her head and realized that if this man was planning on having them all jump out of the plane, then four parachutes wouldn't be enough chutes for the six-person crew, including herself and the Skyjacker. She didn't want to think of what that meant for the odd people out, much less the passengers. Flo Shafter told Cooper that she had to get up and head to the cockpit. Cooper shook his head and told her that he wanted her to sit, but this didn't make sense. If he wanted his demands to be known, she had to get up. Tina Mucklow offered to switch places with her. 
Mucklow sat down next to Cooper and Flo Shafter took the list of demands to the cockpit to inform the pilot what the man wanted. Ralph Himmelsbach was the special agent who would be assigned the D.B. Cooper investigation. At the time, he was having trouble with his marriage and he realized when he got the call about the skyjacking that making him work through Thanksgiving wouldn't help matters any. Skyjackings were a serious problem back then. There had been over a hundred skyjackings just during the Nixon administration alone. The earliest reported skyjacking occurred in Mexico back in December 1929. This was followed in short order by other skyjackings in Lima, Peru and Sao Paulo, Brazil. Up until the 1960s, it was common for skyjackers from communist countries to seize control of planes in order for them to fly to countries that weren't under communist rule. But a curious thing happened in the decades since, and that trend had flipped in the other direction, with many more skyjackers ordering pilots to take them to Cuba or other communist locales. It seemed like no one had any great ideas on how to stop the ever-growing wave of skyjackings. Back then, there were no metal detectors at the airports and passengers didn't have to show identification in order to purchase a plane ticket. There was also a lot of infighting between the Bureau of the Federal Aviation Administration and the airlines over who should be in charge of security. Just recently, the airlines had begun instituting a system of stationing armed air marshals on some flights. Flight 305 didn't have an air marshal, though. There was also another big worry that one day some skyjacker was going to forego demanding money in a free flight to Cuba. Instead, there were constant fears that some suicidal individual would murder the flight crew and purposely crash the plane into a major city. So far, that hadn't happened yet, though. The skyjackers' demands made their way up the chain to the president of Northwest Orient Airlines, Don Nyrop. He was a notoriously stingy individual. For example, this was the guy who one time when he was using the bathroom in a Northwest Orient airplane hangar, he heard the sound of a rustling newspaper coming from the stall next to his. The thought of one of his employees reading a newspaper on company time so infuriated Nyrop that he ordered all men's bathroom doors in Northwest buildings be removed. Nyrop ultimately agreed to pay the $200,000 the skyjacker demanded, knowing full well the airline had insurance. $200,000 in 1971 would be the equivalent of over a million dollars in today's money. After Tina Mucklow sat next to D.B. Cooper, he asked her to light a cigarette for him. She didn't understand why at first until she realized he was still holding the trigger wire attached to the bomb with his other hand. The man chain-smoked cigarettes constantly throughout the flight. Throughout the ordeal, the other passengers remained completely unaware they were being hijacked. Down on the ground was a different matter, though. A squad of FBI agents led by Ralph Himmelsbach raced to the airport with no fixed plan how to handle this. They scrambled to find the parachutes the skyjacker demanded. Cooper would go on to reject the military parachutes they offered him at first. Instead, he opted to take the four civilian chutes they managed to scrounge for him from a nearby skydiving school. At one point, Tina Mucklow's curiosity got the better of her and she had to ask Cooper if he had a grudge against the airline. The man replied he didn't have a grudge against the airline, he just had a grudge. When Tina asked, a grudge against who? The man didn't answer. D.B. Cooper ordered another bourbon and surprisingly insisted on paying for his drinks. The passengers on board Flight 305 were told that a mechanical difficulty was causing a delay to their arrival in Seattle. The plane circled over SeaTac Airport for two hours as the police and the FBI scrambled to get everything together that Cooper had demanded. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Then nearly three hours after taking off, Flight 305 finally landed in Seattle. By then, the storm that had been brewing was now in full force. Rain was coming down in sheets. Cooper allowed Tina Mucklow to leave his side to meet a Northwest Orient employee at the foot of the rear steps in order to receive the four parachutes and the cash. Tina Mucklow brought the money bag back on board. After Cooper saw the cash, he allowed all the passengers to disembark. Tina looked in the bag and nervously exclaimed what a lot of money that was, and could she have some of it? She was only joking, but Cooper actually handed her one of the packs of cash. Tina immediately handed it back, telling Cooper they weren't allowed to accept gratuities. Throughout the flight, Cooper had attempted to tip her and the other flight attendants, but company policy forbade it. After Cooper saw the package of money, it was the first time he became visibly upset during the skyjacking. He had wanted the cash delivered in a knapsack with handles, but the package he received was in a cloth bag without any handles on it. He was forced to improvise. He used a pocket knife to cut apart the canopy from one of the reserve parachutes and used the cords to strap the satchel to his body. Cooper allowed Flo Schaffner and the other stewardesses to leave the plane as well. This only left Captain Scott, First Officer Ratajkak, Flight Engineer Anderson, Cooper, and Tina Mucklow on board. An FAA spokesman asked to meet with Cooper in person on board the plane, but Cooper said no. He grew increasingly impatient. He gave the cockpit crew a flight plan and several other directives. He told them they needed to fly southeast toward Mexico City but they needed to do so at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. This was approximately 100 knots, or 115 miles per hour. First Officer Radicek informed Cooper that moving so slowly would cause a tremendous amount of fuel burn, and they'd be forced to stop for a refueling again after only about 1,000 miles. So a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the flight crew discussed their options and eventually agreed on Reno, Nevada as their refueling stop. Cooper also gave them specific instructions that the plane could not go up any higher than 10,000 feet and that they should set the plane's flaps to 15 degrees. D.B. Cooper appeared to have some knowledge of flight operations, which has led many people to speculate that he had some experience around planes. He ordered the flight crew to take off with the aft stairs extended. The crew insisted that this was not safe and could cause structural damage to the plane. Cooper insisted that it could be done, but eventually agreed that he would lower the steps himself while the plane was in the air. He kept Tina Mucklow with him to show him how to lower the staircase. At 7.36 p.m., Flight 305 took off. This time, the plane wasn't alone, though. A pair of F-106 fighter jets from McCord Air Force Base, as well as another Lockheed T-33 trainer, were dispatched to follow Flight 305. This proved difficult for the three fast-moving planes because the 727 was flying so slowly. After takeoff, Cooper asked Tina Mucklow to lower the aft stairs. She told him she was afraid she'd get sucked out the back if she did. One of the flight crew suggested Tina come to the cockpit and get an emergency rope to tie herself to the plane. Cooper rejected the idea. He told Tina to show him how to lower the steps himself. Then he told her to go to the cockpit and pull the curtain behind her. Before she left, Tina Mucklow implored Cooper to take the bomb with him. Cooper said that he would either take it with him or be sure to disarm it before he left. 
As Tina headed up the aisle, she turned and took one last look at Cooper standing behind her with a money bag tied around his waist. She was the last person to see D.B. Cooper. At a little after 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating the aft stairs had been activated. The pilot used the cabin intercom to ask Cooper if he needed assistance. Cooper's last message was a single word. No. Three minutes later, the cabin's air pressure dropped, causing the flight crew's ears to pop. This meant the plane's rear door was opened. The noise level inside the sealed cockpit had risen so much that the crew had to shout at each other to be heard. Less than a minute later, a loud thud could be heard, followed by a rumbling sensation as the rear stairs bounced back up into position. Immediately, the cabin crew felt the pressure in their ears change, indicating the cabin had been resealed. First Officer Bill Radicek told Captain Scott they should mark the moment on their screens because it appeared their friend had just jumped. It would take another couple hours for Flight 305 to arrive in Reno. When the plane landed, they were immediately surrounded by a small army of FBI and state and local police. Captain Scott radioed the tower to confirm that this hijacker was no longer on board. The FBI bomb squad was sent in to search the aircraft. The feds searched every inch of the plane. But Cooper's attache case, nor any sign of the explosives, were found. Agent Ralph Himmelsbach of the FBI was the lead investigator. The FBI did find a great deal of physical evidence on board the plane, but none of it is conclusive in determining Cooper's true identity. They discovered a total of 66 fingerprints lifted from the jet that could not be matched against any other passengers or crew. They also found a cheap J.C. Penny clip-on tie that they believed Cooper had been wearing when he boarded. He also left behind two of the four parachutes. One piece of key evidence we don't have is the note he handed to Flo Shafter that was later read by Tina Mucklow. At one point, Cooper told Tina to give the note back to him. The only way we know what the note said and looked like was from Flo and Tina's memories. Every person on board was interviewed. Descriptions of Cooper varied from person to person. Some people say he was light-complected. Others said he was olive-skinned. Some people said his suit was black. Others said it was brown. The most helpful descriptions came from Tina Mucklow and Flo Shafter since they had spent the most time up close with Cooper. From all these descriptions, a series of sketches were created. They depict Cooper both with and without sunglasses. The best description they could come up with was of a fairly average-looking white male. He was estimated to be around 5 feet 10 to 6 feet tall. He had an average build. Most estimates put him somewhere in his mid-40s. His hair had been slicked over in a distinctive style known as a Marcel. This includes creating a wave using heated tongs. Some people who saw him think he may have used shoe polish to darken the color of his hair. There were some people in the FBI early on who believed that Cooper may not have survived his jump from the plane. The air temperature was frigid at that altitude, and Cooper wasn't dressed for the elements. As far as anyone knows, Cooper only had with him the suit and leather loafers he was seated. The onset of winter would have made for harsh weather conditions. There were storms all around the area. Plus, the civilian parachute he requested wouldn't allow him to steer. He would have been jumping in the dark, in freezing weather, over rugged terrain. And yet, without a body, Ralph Himmelsbach couldn't be certain that D.B. Cooper didn't live through the jump. The FBI poured over every bit of evidence and eyewitness testimony. Experts were brought in to formulate a profile of the Skyjacker. Cooper's specific requests regarding the plane's airspeed and flap settings suggested a familiarity with the aircraft. He also knew that the steps could be lowered during the flight, despite this not being public knowledge, and even going against what the flight crew originally told him. This has led to much speculation that D.B. Cooper may have been a pilot himself or had some other aviation background. 
Perhaps he was an engineer or, as many people have speculated, he may have served in the Air Force. Using the profile they developed, the FBI began looking at a wide number of suspects. In fact, by the time the FBI suspended the investigation in July 2016, they had looked at a more than a thousand different people who may have been D.B. Cooper. Despite the FBI's attempts to clear up the confusion over the name the Skyjacker used, the name D.B. Cooper became reprinted in so many newspaper and magazine articles that the public just assumed that's what he was called all along. It's likely the name Dan Cooper was an alias, but no one is certain of that either. One possible explanation how the Skyjacker came up with this alias is that the name was taken from a French comic book character named Dan Cooper. Back in the 1950s, a series of comic books were published about a fictional Canadian military ace and rocket ship test pilot named Dan Cooper. These comics were never published in the United States, though, which has led some Cooper researchers to theorize that the hijacker may have been exposed to the comics while on a military tour of duty in Europe, or perhaps that he may have been of French-Canadian origin. There were even some storylines of the comics that appeared to match aspects of Cooper's real-life skyjacking, including jumping out of a plane with a parachute, as well as a ransom being delivered with a knapsack. One major hurdle the FBI had to deal with was figuring out where Cooper may have landed. Even if they were just looking for a body in a tree somewhere. The problem is, no one saw the man jump and there were a number of variables that affected how large of a search area they should be looking in. The fighter pilots who were tailing Flight 305 said they never saw the man jump. There was heavy cloud cover at the time that helped mask his escape from the plane. Tiny differences in environmental factors such as wind speed, the speed the plane was traveling, and even the exact time Cooper would have pulled the ripcord could dramatically affect where he might have landed. Ralph Himmelsbach attempted to recreate the man's jump by pushing a 200-pound sled from an open airplane staircase. This led the FBI to determine that Cooper's landing spot was likely somewhere southwest of Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington. They began with a massive search radius throughout Clark County and Cowlitz County. The FBI and local sheriff's deputies began searching by car, foot, and helicopter for any signs of Cooper or his parachute. Deputies even tried going door-to-door -to, -door to every farmhouse in the area just in case Cooper might have been holed up inside one of them, but no luck. Many people speculate that he probably came down somewhere over the remote wilderness and may not have even survived the jump. Several areas of broken tree canopies were examined, but none showed signs of Cooper crashing down through them. D.B. Cooper simply vanished into thin air. Four weeks went by and no trace of D.B. Cooper emerged anywhere. All the serial numbers on the ransom bills were recorded. The numbers were distributed to banks, racetracks, and casinos across the country. The airline offered a 15% fighter's fee for anyone who recovered any of the stolen cash. But no one came forward to claim the reward or to report finding any of the stolen loot. In 1975, the insurance company was forced to pay the airline for the missing ransom money. But by the following year, the case had grown cold enough that there were active discussions among law enforcement about what they should do to prevent the statute of limitations from running out in the hijacking. In November of 1976, a Portland grand jury returned an indictment for John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy. This allowed them to press charges at any time in the future. The indictment also included charges of violating the Hobbs Act, which involved any robbery that crossed state lines. Although doing this made it easier to press charges in the future, they still didn't have a credible suspects. Many suspects were looked at, several of whom we will look at ourselves in the next episode. In 1978, a deer hunter was out in the forest near Castle Rock, Washington when he stumbled across a placard showing the instructions for opening the rear stairs 
of a Boeing 727, the same aircraft that Cooper jumped out of. It's a tantalizing clue, but it's also not something they can conclusively connect to the skyjacking either. Break in the case occurred in 1980. That was when a stack of bills from the skyjacking was discovered along the banks of the Columbia River, near Vancouver, Washington. This discovery renewed public interest in the case, but ultimately yielded no additional information about the hijacker's identity or fate. In my next episode, I'm going to talk about some of those popular suspects in the D.B. Cooper case, as well as some investigators who claim to have come across new clues using modern forensic technology to conclusively determine the true identity of D.B. Cooper. The Conspiratist is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Jim, Eric, Derek, and TJ for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. I've been posting short-form videos in all those places, which are like little bite-sized nuggets of the show. Besides that, you can also find us on Facebook and, well, whatever the heck Twitter is called today. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our back catalog of shows. I also invite you to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, we're on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else across the podcasting multiverse. I know all the podcasts ask for your ratings and reviews, but it really does help us spread the word about the show and grow our audience. Also, if you'd like to let us know how we're doing, feel free to comment on our social media or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back for part two of our series on D.B. Cooper. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.